0: In
1: London, this is The Economist. Hello and welcome to Tasting Menu, a tantalising tour of the stories you need to know about and some you might find hard to believe. I'm Anne McElvoy, Head of Economist Radio, and on the table this week, will Elon Musk put the first man on Mars? Could the Olympics bring peace between North and South Korea? And the person to blame for all your flat-pack furniture woes? first, let's start with the hard stuff. Running hot was our cover line this week. Volatility is back. A week ago, American markets took a serious tumble. On Thursday, they fell again, officially entering a correction, a drop of more than 10%. At the same time, American fiscal policy is souping up growth. Our cover story argued that America should hold on to its hat. It's going to be a wild ride.
0: The Catalyst was a report released on February 2nd showing that wage growth in America had accelerated. The S&P 500 fell by a bit that day, and by a lot on the next trading day. The VIX, an index that reflects how changeable investors expect equity markets to be, spiked from a sleepy 14 at the start of the month to an alarmed 37. In other parts of the world, nerves frayed. Things
1: have since calmed down a little, but adrenaline junkies have plenty to look forward to.
0: That is because a transition is underway, in which buoyant global growth causes inflation to replace stagnation as investors' biggest fear. And that long-awaited shift is being complicated by an extraordinary gamble in the world's biggest economy. Thanks to the recently enacted tax cuts, America is adding a hefty fiscal boost to juice up an expansion that is already mature. Public borrowing is set to double to $1 trillion, or 5% of GDP, in the next fiscal year.
1: Washington is on a fiscal joyride, the likes of which have not been seen since 1945.
0: Economists reckon that Mr Trump's tax reform which lowers bills for firms and wealthy Americans, and to a lesser extent for ordinary workers, will jolt consumption and investment to boost growth by around 0.3% this year. And Congress is about to boost government spending if a budget deal announced this week holds up. Mr Trump, meanwhile, still wants his border wall and an infrastructure plan. Add the extra spending to rising pension and health care costs and America is set to run deficits above 5% of GDP for the foreseeable future. And the last thing you want to
1: hear on the ride of your life is that the driver still wears L-plates. The new boss of the Fed, Jerome Powell, has
0: no formal expertise in monetary policy. What will determine how this gamble turns out? In the medium term, America will have to get to grips with its fiscal deficit. Otherwise, interest rates will eventually soar, much as they did in the 1980s. But in the short term, most hangs on Mr Powell, who must steer between two opposite dangers. One is that he is too dovish, backing away from the gradual and fairly modest, tightening in the Fed's current plans as a salve to jittery financial markets. The other danger is that the Fed tightens too much too fast, because it fears the economy is overheating.
1: We argued that the greater risk lies in tightening too
0: quickly. Mr Powell should cover the break but keep his nerve. New to his role, Mr Powell may be tempted to establish his inflation-fighting chops and his independence from the White House by pushing for higher rates faster. That would
1: be a mistake. To find out why and how America can keep all four wheels safely on the tarmac, do pick up a copy of The Economist. It's available from all good newsstands online at economist.com or via The Economist app. It's been an explosive week all round. 10,
2: 9, 8, Submission.
1: 6, 5, 4,
2: 3, 2,
1: Elon Musk has fired his Tesla Roadster into space on the top of his Falcon Heavy rocket. Oliver Morton, our Briefings Editor, came on our science and technology podcast, Babbage, to tell us about the ultimate goal of the world's most ambitious
3: man. He's very unusual in this degree to which he's directly purpose-driven and the way that the purposes of his companies are not necessarily the way they make money. So you, you know, Google has the purpose of organising all the world's knowledge or whatever, but that's also how it makes its money. Musk isn't saying that going to Mars is directly a way to make money, but he is saying this money-making venture can take me to Mars. I think one of the interesting things is that of the two aims, spreading human civilization to Mars changing the way cars work, you might think that the second one was going to prove to be the easier than the first. But at the moment, you'd have to say that SpaceX is looking like a better corporate bet than Tesla. Keep
1: up to date with the latest developments in science and technology by subscribing to Babbage on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice. Lofty aspirations abounded in this week's shows. Despite an armistice signed in 1953, North and South Korea are still technically at war. I interviewed George Papandreou, vice-chair of the International Olympic Truce Committee and former Prime Minister of Greece, on The Economist Asks. And I asked him whether these Winter Olympics might finally prod along peace on the peninsula.
3: Let's not be naive, of course, but uh, and some people will say, yeah, this is a very lofty, romantic, naive idea. Yes, but in diplomacy, and I have been foreign minister many years and prime minister also, in diplomacy, one looks for every possible window of opportunity when one is in a conflict. Will this be simply a propaganda effort from uh, possibly the North? Will it be simply a um, a media campaign? But it has opened a dialogue, and if this dialogue can continue, then we'll see if that can be used as an opportunity for building something more robust.
1: George Papandreou there. Our weekly interview, The Economist Asks, is published every Thursday. Let's hope the Brexit negotiations don't drag on as long as the North and South Korea standoff. The week ahead, our current affairs programme interviewed campaigners from both sides about the current stalemate. Gina Miller is a vociferous Remainer. In 2016, she took the government to court over its claim to be able to take the UK out of the EU without a parliamentary vote. Everyone's bored of Brexit. We need to get on and decide where this is going this year in 2018. I would very much like to see a vote on what's finally offered to the UK, that is whatever deal it is, a no deal or remaining. It's a people's vote on the final options on the table. And if that were not to happen, then I think you will find that the government are in a really difficult position if they press ahead with a no deal. If that's what we're left with, that changes everything. And you can hear the other side of that argument from Kwasi Kwarteng, one of the prominent pro-Brexit MPs on the backbenches. The week ahead is published every Friday. And a quick plea from me now. We at Economist Radio love talking to you. If you like listening to us, do take a second to rate us on Apple and elsewhere. It does make all the difference and it introduces more of you to our podcasts. As things get fraught in Brussels... Perhaps the negotiators could do with a little something other than all that Belgian beer to make them feel better about the whole thing. According to a piece in our Middle East and Africa section, in northern Tanzania, beer
4: is being challenged by a rival tipple. Strong, smooth, with notes of melon and a hint of a buttery aftertaste. Leopard Lema's banana wine may not delight the critics, but it is a hit in northern Tanzania, where it sells for 500 shillings, that's 23 cents, a bottle. It's cheaper than beer, says Samuel Juma, a security guard, and brings more energy. Locals glug their way through 12,000 litres a day. And
1: thirst like that means business.
4: His wine keeps longer than homemade umbege, a banana beer, and is safer than local moonshine, which sometimes contains methanol. He has also devised a pineapple version – using up fruit which quickly rots after the harvest. The possibilities are bottomless. In Mr Laymer’s factory, women funnel amber wine into recycled bottles. He employs more than 60 people. Mr Laymer made 200 million shillings, that's $90,000 in profit last year, and is expanding into a new eight-acre site. His success shows that industrialization is not just about vast sweatshops or belching chimneys. In much of Africa, it is more likely to mean small businesses processing agricultural products for local tastes. Bananas can also be turned into flour, crisps and jam. Yoweri Museveni, the Ugandan president, wants to use oil revenues to finance banana juice projects, among other things.
1: Mr Lemmert knows his clientele.
4: Mr Lema hopes to win middle-class customers with his pricier pineapple drink. But the main buyers of his banana brew are poorer folk, unable to afford branded lagers. It helps you live more days on this earth, shouts one connoisseur, staggering joyously in the street. We could all
1: do with a bottle of that. But when there's no banana wine to be had, the masses can always turn to another powerful opiate, social media. And as a piece in the pages of our ages section revealed this week, in Southeast Asia, it's
3: not just the masses. When he is not lifting miniscule weights or catering to the whims of his cats, Najib Razak somehow finds time to be Malaysia's Prime Minister. Also, his feed on Instagram, a photo-sharing app, implies... Hun Sen, Cambodia's strongman, apparently dedicates most of his time to posing for selfies with adoring young Cambodians, if his Facebook page is to be believed. And then there is Narendra Modi, India's Prime Minister, who assures his followers on Instagram, every moment of my life is devoted to the welfare of India. That cannot be quite true, as quite a lot of it is devoted to social media, most notably Twitter. He has tweeted more than five times a day, on average, since joining the microblogging service in 2009.
1: Different platforms naturally lend themselves to different purposes and personalities.
3: Facebook is the top choice for pushing policies, says Terence New of Star Engage, a Singaporean company which runs social media campaigns. Instagram is now the main way to promote personalities. Singapore's Prime Minister, Lee Hsien Loong, shares dreamy panoramic photos from his holidays on Instagram. His government recently got locals with lots of followers, such as MCs and bloggers, to hype hashtag SGBudget in a desperate bid to spark youthful excitement about its fiscal plans.
1: Mr Modi takes the crown for innovation.
3: He has created an app that bundles all his social media offerings – It can be downloaded in 12 Indian languages and offers snazzy infographics on government policy as well as titillating articles on the Prime Minister's fashion choices. When simplicity becomes style, the story behind the Modi Kurta.
1: But as any 13-year-old could tell them, beware the overshare.
3: Hun Sen, who has run Cambodia for more than 30 years, was mocked in 2016 when it became obvious he was buying likes for his Facebook page. not all those who pursue Mr Najib's Instagram account are converted. Stupidest PM yet, declares one commentator. Fuck you, fatty, says another.
1: The internet can be so cruel. Perhaps they should spend a little less time tweeting, and a little more time governing. And finally, after social media, another now seemingly indispensable feature of modern life, flat-pack furniture. The founder of IKEA, Ingvar Kamprad, creator of dreams, ruiner of relationships, was
2: remembered in this week's obituary. Light and bright, cheap and cheerful. IKEA's 400-plus outlets in 49 countries all run on the same central principle. Customers do as much of the work as possible in the belief that they are having fun and saving money. You drive to a distant warehouse built on cheap, out-of-town land. Inside, you enter a maze, no shortcuts allowed, where every twist reveals new furniture in pale softwood or white chipboard, artfully arranged with cheerfully coloured accessories to exude a chic, relaxed Scandinavian lifestyle. Leaving laden with flat cardboard boxes,
1: customers dream of ideal homes, just within reach, despite the nagging fear that every frustrated turn of the Allen key risks ruining a relationship.
2: The company's name was a do-it-yourself job too. It stands for Ingvar Kamprad, from Elmteried, his family's farm, in Ogunneried. That village is in the Smolland region of southern Sweden, known for the resourcefulness, stinginess and stubbornness of its inhabitants. Mr camprad founded IKEA aged 17. Well before that he spotted a principle which would make him one of the richest men in the world, that customers like buying retail goods at wholesale prices. As anyone who's tried and come away
1: traumatised can confirm, flat pack furniture requires a certain kind of mind.
2: His self-discipline was legendary. As a child, he removed the off button from his alarm clock to stop himself oversleeping. He shunned first-class travel. Having lots of money was no reason to waste it. He bought his clothes in flea markets and for years drove an elderly Volvo until he had to sell it on safety grounds. He worked well into his 80s. Successfully built, his empire changed the world. Mr Kamprad's impact on modern life rivalled that of Henry Ford, and the mass-produced motor car. Furniture used to be costly, clunky, dark and heavy. Out went the hand-me-downs and junk-shop monstrosities. In came the cool, tasteful, egalitarian look and feel of modern Sweden. Airy, sparse, uncluttered. A little bland, perhaps, but hard to dislike. The mission was civilizational. he felt, changing how people lived and thought— and boosting democracy more than anything politicians did.
1: But despite careful construction, some things were unmistakably out of whack.
2: The intensity of company values struck some as creepy. At IKEA's corporate culture centre, ubiquitous pictures of Mr Kamprad accompany his mottos about humility, willpower and renewal. Some parts of the supply chain seemed whiffy. So did the empire's extreme tax efficiency. His greatest mistake was a youthful but lingering flirtation with fascism. Why did I not reveal this past foolishness myself, Mr Kamprad explained, simple, I was afraid it would hurt my business. Frugality may be admirable, but not when it comes to telling the truth.
1: That's the last piece of this week's edition of Tasting Menu. If you spent the weekend putting up flat-pack furniture of any brand, I raise a glass of banana wine to you in sympathy. And remember, you can find more of the articles featured here at economist.com and the full versions of all our podcasts through your podcast app. You don't even need an Allen key. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist.